We record on Turrbal and Yagara country in Mianjin, Brisbane. The Committee for Brisbane acknowledges the First Nations people of the region and their continuing connection to and care of the land, waters and community of that region. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Welcome to Dream Boldly, the podcast that brings together the best and brightest minds from Brisbane, Australia, proud host city of the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Our guests will be experienced and well-known Brisbane leaders sharing big ideas to help shape a better city and region. Our guest is Luke Fraser, CEO of Brisbane's iconic Howard Smith Wharves and Queensland President of the Property Council of Australia. While Howard Smith Wharves is undoubtedly one of Brisbane's must-do experiences, it hasn't always been smooth sailing for Luke and the team. When Howard Smith Wharves officially opened to the public in December 2018, no one could predict the global disruption and decimation that would follow just 12 months later. Here to chat risk, reward and renewal, welcome Luke. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Luke, following your recent appointment as Queensland President of the Property Council of Australia, you remarked that you would challenge anyone to identify a place around the world with a more exciting future than Queensland. What is it about Queensland and Brisbane in particular that makes it the world's most livable city for you personally? Well, you know, at the risk of sounding super boring, which I'll explain, people, lifestyle, climate, roll forward nine years from now-ish, world coming to town, seems pretty exciting to me what's coming. But what's really exciting about those, you know, what seem really boring lifestyle and the people and the climate, we talk about it is that I think it's how proud we are about that now, how comfortable we are, how we've recognised it for what it is. And we've had this thing about, you know, I've grown up in Brisbane my whole life. I've travelled the world, but I grew up in Brisbane. And we haven't always identified with the things that are amazing for living here. And now we realise that. And I think that's super exciting. And now we're getting confident around it. We are developing who we are. We're the, we hear it a lot. We're the adolescent. And now we're discovering who we're going to be as an adult. And mm. I think that's, that's it's really exciting for me. And when you say you've travelled extensively around the world, has that been predominantly for work, for personal enjoyment? Yeah, mostly for leisure, a little bit of work. Um but, you know, always coming back to Brisbane, I'm a bit boring. You know, I still live in the same postcode that I grew up in. and no uh, You know, and for, for a long time, I kind of felt a little bit embarrassed by that. But now I'm really proud and, you know, it's a great place and I love it and I love that story now. Yeah. And what is it about Brisbane, do you think, you know, you mentioned that it's it's now that we've really come to own the great qualities of the city and be comfortable about really spruiking it. What has changed, do you think, to, to make us that way? Well, the city's definitely changed a lot. And, you know, the, the jury is out on whether we, sh- we should shake this off and never talk about being the big country town or whether we should, you know, embrace the great parts of being a big country town. And one of the real revelations for us, I think, is we've stopped measuring ourselves against, you know, Sydney and Melbourne. And we are really recognising the fantastic things that Brisbane has. The people up here, you know, the style of business is a lot more relaxed than some of those southern cities. It's a very friendly place. You know, we are now realising our superpower of Brisbane River and connecting with it. It's not just the place where it used to be the sewer and the place that transported goods and, you know, the old apartments of New Farm didn't even have their balconies facing the river. You know, it was the staircases. They didn't really 
recognise or value in any way. But now our city is embracing that and, and you know, that is creating opportunities, whether it's the wharves, you know, Eagle Street, Pier, South Bank, you know, Destination Brisbane, what they're doing with Queen's Wharf. They're all creating a place where we're having great conversations about who we are uh, and we're growing up. It's extraordinary to think that there once was a time when the city of Brisbane did turn its back on the city, mm. uh, on the river rather. For those unfamiliar with the geographical landscape of, of Brisbane, the river really winds its way directly through the centre of the city and, and surrounds. One of the most iconic destinations today is, of course, Howard Smith Wharves, for which you are the CEO. It is certainly one of the city's great urban renewal projects of recent years, repurposing the near 100-year-old wharves into one of Australia's leading lifestyle destinations. It's certainly become a must-do Brisbane experience for visitors. You joined the Howard Smith Wharves team as development director and were instrumental in steering that project to fruition. Take us back to the early days. What attracted you to the project and to this particular dilapidated parcel of land under the bridge on the borders of the city? Yeah, thanks. And your words are too kind and recognising, you know, the wharves, um, you know, we're really humbled by how much people love it and we're glad that they come on down and enjoy it. Yeah, my connection to the wharves actually goes right back to when I was a child. So I've, I've let the family down. My dad and grandfather were both firemen and very senior firefighters in Brisbane and both worked at Kemp Place Fire Station, which is right behind Howard Smith Wharves. And I vividly remember quite often driving across the Story Bridge to go and meet my father after work, pick him up, and I remember this place there and, you know, times getting out of the car and exploring the local area. And so I remember this place as a kid and then uh, growing up in Brisbane and then uh, moving into to property and real estate um, immediately after school. This site was always there and you're always looking at great places and always wondering why, why has nothing happened there? Why is, why is that still sitting there? So I was always attracted to it. Uh, and then it was amazing opportunity when the council bought that site to tender. And they'd done a lot of good work over a really long time before that. Before our involvement, they'd gone and done the neighbourhood plan and really set up a framework and done a lot of community consultation as well. So timing was right and came along. And at the time, I was working with Brookfield, one of the largest private equity firms in the world, and the opportunity that I was pursuing was to find development opportunities, funding opportunities or build opportunities for their their businesses. At the time, they didn't have a focus on Brisbane, but were happy to pursue those sorts of things. And I was lucky at the time, through our architect, who's still our architect today, Mark DeMont, I said to him, good news, we can keep proceeding with this project. We put a, a credit paper in, as they called it. Bad news is we need a dance partner and uh, need a, an investor or some sort of other partner to help deliver it. And um, during that time, I then, uh, through Mark, was really fortunate to meet a fellow called Adam Flaskus, who had a plan for the site as well. And uh, the rest is history from there. So, And was there any resistance to the project initially? You mentioned the community consultation that had taken place from council. Was, was there any scepticism as to what it could become? I wouldn't say any resistance. I think the thing about urban renewal projects is is change and human beings 
at their core don't really like change. And what we tried to do, and, and I'd say quite successfully, is really engage very heavily with the local community. And, you know, we had a lot of uh, plans and lots of images. Really hard to articulate that, though. You know, when, you, when I'm used to reading plans and understand them and can see what they mean, but not everyone's brain is wired that way. So one of the things that we wanted to do was really engage early with the community through, you know, community consultation days, meeting with local residents and really telling them what the plan was. And the reality was that for the most part, everyone really recognised that change needed to happen at Howard Smith Wharves. You know, it was, it was derelict, it was very run down. You know, the last time it had a use and a purpose was in the mid-90s when the water police occupied. And after that, it hadn't really had a use. And, you know, that is the story of old buildings. You know, if they don't have a use and a purpose and an income, then, then it is hard for money to be spent on them and naturally the upkeep doesn't mm. get done. It's uh, one of those you know, projects that was five years in the making. This year, Howard Smith Wharf celebrates its fifth year of operation in its current form as a lifestyle destination. If you cast your mind back to that initial bid that was submitted to council, is what it has eventuated to be what you had pitched initially or, or what's changed? It's really interesting you mentioned this. We just recently uh, went back to our original bid document, found it bottom of the drawer, pulled it out and it was this beautiful glossy submission and a pitch that we made to the council at the time. And what's really extraordinary is when I look at it, it's pretty much what's there today. And the promises that we made and they're all there. And so uh, that was a really proud moment for us seeing that we'd followed through with it. You know, it was a, it was a really challenging project back then it was a new place, you know, it wasn't proven. So it was a challenging project to get financiers involved, which did happen. We were very fortunate for the partnership we had um, with PGIM, who saw the vision for the future. At the same time, you know, construction pricing absolutely went through the roof. And we're experiencing that now in an in even more severe way. And in, uh, in Brisbane and, and throughout Australia. But at the time, construction pricing did go up significantly. But we really took the view at that point, we, we didn't want to go back to council or anyone and renegotiate. We wanted to just complete the project and get it done. So when you have those mounting costs, and, and it is unavoidable when it is a multi-year build, and you mentioned even the way that in more recent years, that, that just the the world, the, the changes in the world have really driven prices up even more. How do you navigate that when you're in the middle of a build, you've made promises to a huge number of people? How do you navigate those kinds of shifts and changes, and especially when it comes down to budget? It is a big challenge, and I think it starts by having a good plan so you don't get to the middle and have your OGs moment. So uh, very much for us, um, we're really good business we're at being agile, but also having a really good plan. I love a, I love a plan A and go really, really hard at my plan A, but plan Bs and plan Cs are really, really important. And when you're undertaking major investment or major construction projects, doing the work up front is hugely important so that you've made all the little decisions that could impact risk or, or cost blowout so that when you're underway, you're um, you're in a, in a safer position than what you might be. Um, yeah, our challenge on the wharves was that before we even got to that point, construction pricing gone up. So our original feasibilities were certainly under pressure. 
So that made us have to work work pretty hard. Mm. And in a project of this scale, there's, of course, a huge range of stakeholders and investors who buy into that vision. How did you sell the dream to them? What were some of those promises that you made to get them to buy into the potential of what Howard Smith Wharves would become? Yeah, well, I think what we brought to the table was a really unique proposal. We were what we called at the time an integrated operator. So we had a vision for the whole of the wharves. We didn't want parts of it. We didn't want to do a traditional development where we we build something, lease it out and sell it off. What we wanted to do was operate it for the long term, you know, intergenerational asset, something like that. And that provided us with a unique opportunity to really tell a different story around it. So that's why when you go down there today, you can see that not just the building spaces are activated, like what you might see in a normal development, but all the outdoor spaces. We've thought about, we've curated uh, we activate them when we're busy, you know, come down on a Monday morning, kick your footy, run around with the dog on all the grass, do whatever you want. But come down on a Friday to Sunday when Brisbane comes out and is having fun, yeah, we activate those lawn spaces um, in really unique ways. And so that gave us the opportunity to uh, engage with the community and tell that story. Uh, it gave us a chance to talk less about development but more about what great lifestyle is. This place is going to be different from what's there today. The quality curated food and beverage offering is key to Howard Smith Wharves. You know, we're, we're talking some of the city's top restaurants in Stanley and Yoko, uh, Greca, of course. What was the recipe for getting this mix right? It was really important to absolutely nail that mix. So it's very deliberate in what cuisine, where it is, and who the operators and the people involved in those businesses are. Because it, we talk about it a lot when we're down at the wharves and we say it's one big family, and it really, really is. And so it's important that everybody works together. You know, think about if it was a traditional real estate play again, you know, you would be out there just looking for the tenant that could pay, say, the most rent. You know, good covenant, but pay the most rent. In our case, you know, we wanted to find the right operator who could come in and complement the other businesses that were around them and really believed in the overall vision. And that's what we set about doing. Another lesser known part of Howard Smith Wharf's success is its environmental credentials, including waste management, which diverts an incredible 95% of waste from the precinct from landfill. What are some of the other key sustainability initiatives and how difficult was it to balance commercial viability with a project of this scale and sustainability? Yes, yeah, sustainability is something which we, we now say is in our DNA at the Wharves and we started with a plan before we even opened about wanting to do something better and wanting to have a really positive impact on the planet. And as you said, we focused around the waste strategy for the wharves. And one of the things that we found when we opened was that we had to share the pathway with, you know, people who are using it from people walking it, people riding their bikes to, you know, and then they had, we had to get deliveries in and then we had to get waste out. And what we saw was that we were generating truck movements on, on the pathway. So we wanted to reduce that number so it improved the overall amenity of the wharves. And what that did at the same time was drove us to be innovative in something which we were 
passionate about, which is sustainability. So the consolidation of different waste streams meant less truck movements. You know, the people were just coming less to pick it up. And then one of the really big byproducts was reducing the amount of general waste. And general waste, when it goes to landfill, it's got food, it's got rubbish, it's got a bunch of things in it. And when it goes to landfill, it doesn't compost and break down, it actually creates methane and destroys the ozone layer. So we focused a strategy around trying to separate out all those different waste streams and find a home for them. So we currently have 17 different waste streams. And what we I do... I think we, I could name 17 different yeah, types of waste streams. Yeah, well, maybe when we started, we probably didn't think there were 17 mm. either. In fact, I think, I, actually, I know there's a lot more as well. You can continue to get granular and you can find the right home for something and find the best person to do something with it and do the, you know, the most sustainable way of recycling it as well. So the big hallmark of what we've created there is that hospitality businesses not inherently produce a lot of food waste. So of all of the waste that we generate at the walls, 50% of that is food. And what we take from there is half of that, we invested in some organic food composters. They use microbes, heat and movement, and they break down the food waste at the wharves. We then take that food waste. We have a partnership with the local farmer. He takes that and he can use it as basically a high-grade fertiliser. The other 50% of food waste, we have a partnership with another group out at Greenbank and we take it out there and they also compost it and use it for fertilisers and other sorts of things. So we are just constantly investing in this, constantly innovating, constantly trying to find new ways of doing it. One example which we came across a couple of years ago was when we were separating out all the food waste, we were ending up with these oyster shells and the oyster shells couldn't go into the composter because they can't break down fast enough. So the team were saying, well, what do we do with these oyster shells? We don't want to put them in the general waste bin because that's not what we're about. So we found this group at Morton Bay, the Shellfish Restoration Project, Morton Bay Shellfish Restoration Project, and their initiative is to take old oyster shells and take them, they sterilise and clean them, they put them in these steel baskets and they put them in Morton Bay and those oysters then create a home for new oysters. So Mm -hmm. every one of our old oyster can create 10 new baby oysters and those baby oysters become the filters of the ocean as we know and then creates a healthier ocean and creates a situation where wildlife, fish and other things can start to thrive. So we've entered into a partnership with them and, um, you know, we're just, con- so just constantly looking for ways to innovate, do mm. things better. And that must be, you know, in your role as CEO, ultimately you are responsible for everything but critically the financial viability of the ongoing running of a business such as this. How do you balance, you know, the commercial targets, forever climbing, no doubt, with that genuine commitment to sustainability, which is not without effort or investment? Yeah, we what we have found is that we're really fortunate the scale of the wharves. Every business is part of our sustainability program. And so with the benefit of scale, we've got the economies there, which we are in a position today where we've made it financially viable. And I always think in a business, if something is costing money, there might come a time in its life where it becomes a target. And yet COVID was a great example of that, where everyone had to zero in on every single cost in their business and critically assess whether they needed it. And it would be a real shame if sustainability in someone's business, not in ours, but became a target because it was costing money. So we've we've got the benefit of scale. 
So we are constantly innovating. So we've we basically rebuilt the hospitality model. So we had a bunch of roles that might have normally sat within a kitchen. Every kitchen might have had uh, a number of people doing a certain role. We've looked at redeploying those into what we call a sustainability team. So 17 people who work in our business whose sole purpose is to recycle. So we've saved some normal roles that would have been in a kitchen put them in other places, and we put the sum of all the parts together. Yeah, today it's financially sustainable for us. Incredible. It was only 12 months or, or just over uh, after Howard Smith Wharves had opened that the global pandemic completely decimated the hospitality industry and it led to an unfathomably difficult few years for business businesses of all kinds, but specifically hospitality. Going from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows must have been an incredibly stressful time for you and the team. Take us back there. Yeah, I mean, the reality was the whole world was experiencing something quite distressful. And, um, yeah, it was a tough time. It was a really tough time. And reflecting on it, now we're so thankful we had that first 12 months because we knew what we were fighting for. It was, it, you know, we thought we can just get back there, you know. Uh, we know what know what is possible at Howard Smith Wharves. So, yeah, it was a tough time but, you know, uh, I think we'll all be better for it, oddly, mm. and, you know, personally experiencing it, learned a hell of a lot during that time and, you uh, you know, our business and like many around the world, you know, as I said, we got quite focused on what, what are the things that are important to us, how do we do it, whilst we work 24-7 probably for the first few months just trying to set us up so we could survive for as long as possible. No one knew how long the pandemic was going to go for. After that, we then had the opportunity to actually catch our breath and look at our business. And if you think about a place like Howard Smith Wharves, it opened so fast we had to build the place. We had to recruit every person that worked there. We had to buy every system, every piece of software, turn it on for the first time. And we made, I'll say, really good decisions. We made the best decision we could at that time. But with the benefit of catching our breath during COVID, we got the chance to look back and go, okay, we've learned from that. It really helped us then, you know, focus on our people, which are really, really important. You know, we went from having a thousand people down to 27 people working three days a week. And it was, it was heartbreaking because we'd spent all this time building this business and, you know, people are the lifeblood of a hospitality business in a precinct like Howard Smith Wharves. So uh, we kept in contact with all those people. Obviously, we, you know, it made us really, really value them more than already we did value them. So coming out as we've re-emerged out of COVID, we've had uh, just an even bigger focus on people. We, you know, really believe in investing in young people and creating careers for them, particularly in hospitality. Shortly after the pandemic, or, or not after, but amidst the pandemic, Brisbane experienced one of its largest recorded floods. And it's the type of flood that was once labelled a once-in-a-hundred-year event. But the current generation here in Brisbane has seen at least three of them in recent years. We touched earlier in the chat on, you know, the fact that we didn't always invest in our river. Do you think it's wise for Brisbane to continue to do so and to continue to developing the river's edge when that threat of flood is so prevalent? 
I do actually, and I think as long as it's done sensibly and practically and with the knowledge that we now all have around what happens when, when the river floods and let's let's just assume it, it may happen again, hopefully not for 100 years, but say it's been happening reasonably regularly since 1974. So, I mean, if I think about our own experience at Howard Smith Wars, what we knew from 2011 is that the existing buildings didn't flood, came close and similar to what happened in 2022. The buildings closest to the city, they came close, but they didn't flood. And that was what we knew from 2011. The far new farm end of the wharves, we had the opportunity during the redevelopment phase to to future-proof and provide better flood immunity to that, which is what we did. So we raised the wharf shed down the end. It's it's about, its floor level is about a metre higher than what it was. There's sections of that new farm end of the wharves that we filled up to 1.8 metres, depending on where it was. So we've certainly created a flood-proofed and now proven twice asset there. And I think that's what, as long as we're taking that approach in other river edge developments, I think that's sensible. And so I do think the river is our superpower. The more we can engage with it, the better the lifestyle of Brisbane will mm. be. And um, But, you know, clearly there's other parts of the city that has other challenges, that, you know, where they're really low-lying areas built on floodplains and, you know, mm. you know clearly there needs to be some innovative solutions there. Brisbane's Riverside is experiencing a kind of renaissance with several major projects nearing completion, including Queens Wharf Brisbane, as you mentioned, and also the revitalisation of Eagle Street Pier. What impact, either good or bad, will these developments have on Howard Smith Wharves, do you think? We are absolutely cheering these developments on. We cannot wait for them to be completed and you know, our view is that a strong city everywhere will be good for everyone. And, uh, you know, having new attractions, reasons for people to visit, reasons for people to stay longer will be amazing for everyone. And think about uh, Queen's Wharf and the experiences that we you may have seen in, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne when big casino or big integrated resort developments happen. They create whole new economies. And, you know, if they can attract even half the number of visitors that they're hoping to attract, and I'm sure they'll get all of them to the city from, you know, whether it's interstate or overseas, that will be amazing for all the other businesses that are here today. Finally, Luke, in the spirit of the Dream Boldly podcast, what are your hopes and aspirations for Brisbane more generally? Those who know me know I'm, I'm hugely passionate about Brand Brisbane and you know, I would hope with the runway that we have and all the exciting things that are happening that we firm up who we are as our identity. I think it's becoming pretty clear to us. You know, we, are, we are a mature, exciting, metropolitan city. You know, I touched on I said it's a little boring, you know, lifestyle, people and climate, but geez, they're fantastic, those three elements of living here in Brisbane. I think how we recognise that and how, you know, I think we can create the story, what we tell to the world. I think that's a, a marketing thing. We, we can do that. But what will be the most beautiful thing is when you live here in Brisbane and you wake up in the morning and every day everyone who's a resident or a visitor knows exactly what Brisbane is as well. And if we just keep putting Howard Smith Wharves and Megan Washington in our brand Brisbane videos, surely we can't go wrong, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Luke. Pleasure. Thank you for having me along. Really enjoyed the chat. 
Thanks for listening to Dream Boldly. This podcast is brought to you by the Committee for Brisbane in association with Aruga. The Committee for Brisbane is an independent, not-for-profit organisation whose vision is for Greater Brisbane to be the world's most livable place. To find out more, please visit committeeforbrisbane.org.au. Please remember to rate and share the show. See you next time.